Do you have any doubts along the way? This, this way of God? You ever find yourself wondering if, if God really exists? And if he does, what, what's he doing? Do you ever get to thinking that, that maybe he's working in your roommate's life, but, but not yours? You ever get troubled by the, the sense of injustice and evil in the world? My big question for you this morning is, do you have any doubts along the way? I'm not sure how it was decided that this semester would be the the theme, the way of God, but God's been speaking to me about this whole way for a number of months. Seems like every time I, I listen to a podcast, pick up a Bible, read a devotional, it, it seems like the message that God was giving me over and over again was that he's got a way and he's got a path and he wants me to pay lots of attention to that. But as I was thinking and praying about this particular chapel, the, the message that I felt like God talked to me about was to talk about this whole issue of doubts along the way. So do you have any doubts along the way? There was a segment of the news on recently that kind of left me bummed. Uh, the story suggested that, that children being born today may never own a car. Mass transit and ride sharing and the commentators had this whole list of reasons why children born today might not ever own a car, might not ever have the joy of owning a car. And, and that may not bother you at all, but I was just really depressed about that. My first car wasn't very attractive. It, uh, it had four wheels and, and an engine and it was mine. I, I still remember installing a, a very special sound system. There's a few faculty, maybe some administrators that might be in here that might remember 8-track tapes, but, but most of you don't even know what an 8-track tape is. You've never even seen one, but, but I still remember the satisfaction of installing that 8-track tape player. Now, dinosaurs were not walking the earth at the time that this happened, but, but it was a long time ago. And over the years, I've kind of enjoyed owning a wide variety of cars. I, I had a 66 Mustang, and and I had a 77 Corvette. And uh, that my wife, actually, when I met my wife, I, I, she told me later that the only reason she really was willing to go out with me was because of the Corvette. And we've been married for 35 years this year, so, so evidently she stuck around. The sad thing is I never actually let her drive the Corvette. I know. Before I got a driver's license, I had to take this this driver's education course. We were in these trailers and they showed us all of these videos of terrible accidents and blood and guts and all of these kinds of things. And we had to learn all of this stuff to be able to, to take the test, to be able to pass the test, to be able to get a driver's license. And, and one of the things that they had on the test that I felt like was the hardest thing was you had to learn how many feet it took to stop a vehicle at certain speeds. So if you were going 55 miles an hour, it took X number of feet and 35 miles an hour was a different uh, distance, and I thought that was the stupidest thing in the world to learn. Some of you have seen the, the bumper sticker that says, if you can read this, you're too close. Actually, I think it has some other language in that, but, but for chapel, I'll just tell you that it says something kind of like that. If you can read this, you're too close. And then maybe you've been behind a truck, and, and you've seen the, the, the bumper sticker or the sticker on the truck that says, if you can't see my mirrors, then I can't see you. 
Well, as a young police officer, I learned that there was a good reason for learning those stopping distance statistics. One of my least favorite responsibilities as a police officer was to investigate automobile accidents. And I was once sent to the scene of a 12-car pileup. One car slowed down, and the 11 cars behind this car couldn't stop in time. The problem in that situation is that every car that struck the car in front of them was responsible for the damage of the car for they struck in front of them because the law says you can't follow too close. It's against the law. When my son was learning to drive, we told him over and over and over again that he needed to slow down and he needed to keep enough distance between him and the car in front of him. Regrettably, like many good sons, he didn't listen. And sure enough, about six weeks after we bought his first car, we got a call that he had hit the car in front of him at a traffic light. Fortunately, no one was hurt, but it was an expensive lesson because his car was totaled. It's amazing what we can learn from experiences, especially the painful ones in life. Jesus had his disciples on what I think was a crash course of of education. He, he would only spend a few years with them, and then he was depending upon them to establish the church and carry out the mission of taking the gospel to every living creature, a mission that continues today. The disciples were in basic training, and, and never does that seem to be more evident as in the scripture that we saw on the screen a few minutes ago this morning, Matthew 14, 22 through 33. Let me go back and give you a, a little more context for what's going on in this particular moment. Two things have just happened. Number one, Jesus just received word prior to this walking on the water experience. He had just received word that his cousin John the Baptist had been executed. He had been beheaded. And the second thing is that Jesus had just fed 5,000 men plus women and children. So you've got some horrible news followed by a big-time miracle. And can you imagine what it would have happened on Twitter and Facebook if this many people were fed by five loaves and two fish, supplied by a little boy? But following this amazing miracle, Matthew gives a couple of interesting words to describe what Jesus did next. Verse 22 in chapter 14, he uses the word immediately. I say interesting because this word more likely would be used in Mark's gospel. Mark was a young guy in a hurry. Matthew was much more precise. He was an accountant. But he chooses the word immediately to describe the action that Jesus took following this miracle of feeding the 5,000 men plus women and children. And then the word made in verse 22. Matthew tells us that, that Jesus made, or another translation says forced, another one says compelled, the disciples to get into the boat and go without him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And when I read that, it seems like that's a really strange thing to do. But why in the world would Jesus force or compel the disciples to, to go on ahead of him? Why didn't he use them for some help in dismissing the crowd? Why wouldn't he want them to go with him when he went up on the mountainside to pray? I mean, prayer is a good thing, right? Why would he put them in harm's way by sending them out in a boat when he knew that the wind and the waves were going to be dangerous? So was this an accident, a random coincidence, or was there something else to be learned? Several years ago, I was at my breakfast table reading a devotional that I was using at the time. Some of you have seen it, Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. 
And I read these words, trust God with every detail of your life, nothing is random in his kingdom. I confess to you this morning that I I still wrestle with those words. Every detail, nothing is random in his kingdom. A few years ago, I went hunting in Colorado, went elk hunting, and, and it required me to fly from Houston, Texas to Denver, Colorado, and then drive all night to be in the mountains in the early hours the next morning to start the hunt. A guy that I was traveling with from Houston had made all of the arrangements, including he had borrowed this beautiful four-wheel drive vehicle that was underplated so that we could take it on off-road adventures. And I couldn't believe when we saw it that the guy would actually loan us the vehicle, but he loaned us the vehicle. And there were several of us in this vehicle, and we started out through... uh, the mountains of Colorado. Now, the mountains of Colorado are a little different than driving here in Indiana or Ohio or Illinois. You know, you can just about, don't do this, but you can just about go to sleep on, on a highway in Indiana because they just are really straight, you know. But in Colorado, it's twists and turns and they follow the contour of the mountains and you work your way up. And so we start out and it's it's three o'clock in the morning, and we have to be able to get there at a particular time, so there really wasn't any chance to stop. And, and as I'm driving, I was the youngest in the group at the time, and so they decided I might be the safest to drive. As I was driving, something really weird began to happen, and that is that on this vehicle that was fairly new, the lights began to go out. And they went out at the most inopportune times, like just as we got to a curve in the road. And, and we were in the mountains, and so there are no street lights, no, no lights from the city, no, no lights from any businesses. When it, went, when, it went, when it went out, it was like being in a cave. It was pitch black. Well, about the second time this happened, I just about drove off the side of the mountain and, and, and pulled off, and we got out, and with all of our collective experience, had no ability to fix anything that was wrong with the lights. So I said to these guys, what do we do? He said, well, we, we're going hunting, and we're going to miss a day of hunting if we don't get there, so we just got to keep going. I said, you want me to keep driving with, with no lights, or at least sometimes no lights? And they said, yeah, do the best that you can. And so we did. Scariest drive of my life, by, by far. Obviously made it, and I'm here today. But I think about that often as I go through life because there are moments in time where I feel a little bit like God's turned out all the lights and I don't see the path, I don't see the way, and I've got some doubts about where he's taking me and what he's doing in my life. Anybody ever feel like that? When I was uh, 12 years old, I became the oldest male in my family. No grandfathers, no uncles, no cousins, no father. And it was through a series of of tragedies and poor choices, the male population of my family disappeared. And while I believe what Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I had entered this season of adolescence with a great deal of doubt. Why me? This isn't fair. I didn't do anything to cause this, and I didn't do anything to deserve this. But here's what I discovered during this season. When our experiences don't match our expectations... A gap is created, and in that gap comes disappointment and doubt. 
So if your experience right now is not matching up with what your expectation is, my guess is that disappointment and doubt have worked their way in. So here's my question for you. What do you do with your doubts? Let me give you a few thoughts from a guy who's lived long enough to go from 8-track tapes to Bluetooth and Blu-ray. First of all, you have to count the cost. When I think about doubts, I think about John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. He preached a message of repentance. Large crowds followed him. He baptized Jesus. He, he had this significant ministry until one day he stepped over the line. He, he stood for just a little bit too much righteousness. His problems began when he called the king on the carpet. On a trip to Rome, King Herod fell in lust with his brother's wife, so he divorced his wife and brought his sister-in-law home. And while others gossiped, John the Baptist called it just what it was. It was adultery. And his new wife didn't like what he was saying, so she convinced Herod to have John the Baptist thrown in jail. Now, Jesus was still around at this time. And, and Jesus had the power to give sight to the, the blind and walk on water and feed 5,000. And it seems to me like getting John out of jail, I mean, it was his cousin, would have been no problem at all but he didn't. And then things got worse. King Herod, in a drunken moment, promised anything to the dancing daughter of his new mistress. And after conferring with her mother, she announced, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. That kind of persecution is a little bit more than people insulting you and saying evil things about you. There's not much fair in this story. Even before the death sentence had been handed down, John the Baptist had begun to have some doubts, and so he sends his disciples to Jesus with this question, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Well, John was human, I think. He was struggling with the fact that Jesus hadn't done anything to relieve the persecution he was experiencing. Jesus hadn't even been there to visit him in jail. God had the power to do something, but it appeared that God was sitting on his hands, you ever feel like God has the power to do something in your life and he's not? Jesus gets John's message and his reply is interesting for several reasons. First of all, Jesus didn't get mad. He didn't sit down and write a long letter detailing all that he had experienced or was about to experience. Jesus demonstrates to us again that God never turns, the way, turns away the questions of someone who doubts, someone who is sincerely seeking answers. So here's Jesus' answer when John says, are you the one or should we expect someone else? Jesus says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus was quoting the words of the prophet Isaiah, words that have been written hundreds of years before. And there's another way I think you could say it. You could simply say that, that Jesus was saying, tell John everything is going as planned. There's no fine print in Scripture. Jesus makes it clear that there's a cost to following him, but he invites us on a journey that will not be without moments of doubt along the way. So count the cost. Second thing, I think, is follow close and follow directions. Unlike driving a car where it is very possible to follow close, and you shouldn't do that, Jesus invites us to do just the opposite. He invites us to get close to him. 
I love what Dr. Bray says often. Wherever you are with God, there is more for you. Wherever you are today, there is more for you. I believe that. I've experienced that. We follow close when we spend time in his word and and in the spiritual disciplines. Now, that doesn't mean that you're still not going to have moments of doubt. Disciples were living with Jesus, going everywhere with him, and they still had moments of doubt. But your expectations and your experience will be more in line when you soak yourself in God's word. Third thought, look for God in the storm. I'm convinced that this experience in Matthew 14 was a part of the curriculum for the disciples. They didn't get a printed syllabus that told them that this is what was going to happen on that particular day, but, but I believe that it was a part of the plan. I don't think it was an accident when, when Jesus said, get in the boat and go ahead of me. I believe he wanted them to experience an actual storm, and I think he wanted them to see him walking on the water. I also believe with all my heart that, that Jesus uses the storms in your life and in my life to grow us in our faith. If if we look to him and trust him in the storms and on the sunny days. Now, here's what I don't believe. I don't believe that God looks down from heaven every day and says, you know, I'm going to mess with you today. I don't think he looks down and says, you know, I'm going to give you a flat tire today, or I'm going to strike you with cancer today. I don't think it works like that. But I do believe he knows who's looking for help. And we'll trust him in the storm. Fourth thing is step out in faith. I traveled with my daughter a few years ago and Dr. William, Wilbur Williams and a group to the Holy Land. And one of the experiences we enjoyed together was a boat trip on the Sea of Galilee. It was daylight, it was calm, we had life jackets, I can swim and I could see the shore. So it did not take any faith at all for me to get in the boat and sail on the Sea of Galilee. It was fun. Several years ago, I was fishing on a a boat in northern Arkansas. We were on what is called a heat lake. You may not know what heat lakes are, but heat lakes are are lakes that take the water out of the lake, they pump it through an electrical plant where the water gets warmed, they pump it back into the lake, and so the lake is 85 degrees all year long. Doesn't matter what the temperature is outside, temperature's 85 degrees in the lake. Now, fish love warm water, so what happens is the fish grow bigger, and fatter, and fishermen love big, fat fish. And so that's the kind of place that you go to fish. And so I was out there at 3 o'clock in the morning fishing on this heat lake, having the time of my life when a cold front blew in, a cold front that brought sleet and snow and ice and 40-mile-an-hour winds. Hadn't really thought this through very well. Otherwise, we would not have been out on the lake at 3 o'clock in the morning a heat lake, because when the sleet and the snow and the ice hit the lake, it created steam and so or fog. So pretty soon, we couldn't see anything of where we were going. I did not think that we would make it off that lake that night. Well, I did. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here this morning. But the, the experience gave me a whole new appreciation for what Peter did that night when he stepped out of the boat and walked toward Jesus. Peter did what no one else did sometime between 3 and 6 when he stepped out. When you find yourself in times of doubt, you will either walk to Jesus or away from Jesus. And sometimes it's really hard to take that first step of faith, especially when everybody else in the boat remains seated. Number five, 
What do you do in times of doubt? Well, you remember what he's done in the past. So I would encourage you to keep a journal. And in that journal, write down God moments. Because I think most of us suffer from spiritual amnesia. That is, we, we forget completely what God has done for us in the past. Those of you that have taken New Testament with me, you love journals, I know. Maybe you don't. But I make you do journals. And part of the reason I make you do journals is because because I think there's something powerful about looking back in those doubtful moments of your life when you look back and you're reminded that there were times when God did something and you're absolutely positively convinced that God's the only one that could have been involved in that. It wipes away that spiritual amnesia. There are some great doubters from days gone by, so take comfort in the fact that people like Abraham and Moses and Gideon, David, read the Psalms. That's his journals. That's much of what we see in the Psalms. I read Psalm 25 this morning that talks all about the way of God. Read them and you'll discover that there were moments of great anguish. There were moments when David was ticked off. He was so mad at God. There's all kinds of transparency in the journals, and there can be in yours as well. I think that's a really good thing. Jonah was a doubter. All of the disciples, especially a guy guy named Thomas, maybe a twin, often referred to as Doubting Thomas. His story encourages me. Jesus knew that that Thomas needed to see and to touch, and he led him. Legend has it that that Thomas ended up being a a missionary in India, where he died as the result of a spear wound to his side. Now, we don't know whether or not the legend is true, but how ironic would it be that Thomas, the one who touched the wounds in the side of Jesus, would himself die as a result of that kind of wound? Well, here's the last thing about doubting. Scripture teaches us to have mercy on those who doubt. In this this little one-chapter letter in Jude, we read these words. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Interesting that this verse is found in this book. The theme of the book is false teaching apostasy. It's a bold little book written to believers about the importance of faith and sound doctrine. And Jude calls on the church to contend for the faith. It's a a fiery little book. But tucked away in those 25 short verses are the instructions to have mercy on those who doubt. Why? Because every single one of us, every single one of us will have doubts somewhere along the way. Right now, I've got some people in my life that are doubting. One of them uh, has so many doubts that he now describes himself as a Christian atheist. Christian by culture, atheist by belief. Others I know are wrestling with where God is and what he's doing in their life. Some are going through some painful moments and and some moments along the way that have made it very, very lonely for them and they find themselves doubting. The disciples in the boat that night were on a journey with Jesus and, and I'm convinced that their experience with him that night was all about growth, taking that seed of faith that had led each one of them to answer his invitation to follow him. 
And this moment was, was a bit of the, the watering and, and feeding that faith so that there could be a harvest in the days ahead, a harvest that would, would lead to the establishment of the church that continues today. This boat experience in Matthew chapter 14 was not the first time that they had seen Jesus walk on the water. It wasn't the first time that they had dealt with this whole wind issue. Six chapters back in Matthew chapter 8, you might remember that, that the whole group was on another boat, out on the sea. But this time, Jesus was not outside the boat. He was actually on the boat. And if you remember the story, you know he was asleep. And Matthew tells us that this furious storm came up on the lake, and the waves swept over the boat. And they wake him up, and they convinced him that they were going to drown. And he spoke these words, you have little faith, why are you so afraid? And then he spoke to the wind and the waves, and Scripture tells us it was completely calm. But at the end of, of that teaching moment in Matthew chapter 8, here's what we read. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now fast forward with me to Matthew chapter 14 and see the progression in the journey of faith that the disciples are on. Because of the end of the story in Matthew 14 in verses 32 and 33, and when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. A few weeks ago, I was praying about how to conclude this message. I had thought and prayed about it for several days. And so on March the 1st, I was up early and, and had my devotional time. And I decided kind of at the end of my devotions to open an app on my phone, a devotional app. And, and, and it popped up with, instead of March the 1st, it popped up with February 29th. I don't know why, but somehow my iPhone was confused and thought this was leap year. Still don't know really why it happened, other than the fact that when I read the words from this devotional, it was exactly what I needed, and I'm hoping that it's what some of you need today. So would you stand with me? And I want to ask you to do something that is going to bother some of you. It's not that weird, and it won't last that long, but, but would you just take the hand of the person next to you, and if you're way down the aisle from somebody, would you find somebody that you could hold hands with? I want everybody to hold hands with somebody. And you can reach across the aisles too, that's good. Thank you. Bless you. Awesome. Oh, I like this. This is a, this is a great group here. You guys in the back, go ahead and, and follow the leader. Excellent. Beautiful. All right. Thanks. All right, so I want you to bow your heads with me for just a minute. We'll be done and you'll be on your way to lunch or class or wherever you're headed. If you're here this morning and you've got some doubts going on in your life, maybe you're living in a season of doubt, would you just give the person next to you a little squeeze just so that they'll know maybe better how to pray for you? Give you a second to do that. Now listen to these words from a devotional, February the 29th. You're on the right path. Listen more to me and less to your doubts. I'm leading you along the way I designed just for you. Therefore, it is a lonely way, humanly speaking. 
but I go before you as well as alongside you, so you're never alone. Do not expect anyone to understand fully my ways with you any more than you can comprehend my dealings with others. I am revealing to you the path of life day by day and moment by moment. As I said to my disciple Peter, so I repeat to you, follow me. Would you pray for just a moment for the person on your right? You may not know them, but would you just lift them in prayer? Now would you do the same for the person on the left? Now would you take a moment just to pray for yourself? Thank you, Jesus, for calling us to walk in the way and the path that you have laid out for us. Give us strength on the journey. May we fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. For it's in your name we go. Amen. God bless you.